As the blinds received the rising sun, Steve Gamble peered through the bedroom door, checking in on his daughter. What he found made his heart sink. It was an empty bed in a hollow room. Taylor Gamble, age 19, was gone. For the next two hours, authorities would comb the entire area. Then, alongside a road, in sweatpants, a t-shirt, and socks, Taylor appeared. Unharmed, safe, and a little groggy. In the course of the night, Taylor traveled nine miles, another bout of sleepwalking. Sleepwalking occurs subconsciously. No one decides to do it. Yet the body wanders into strange places in the darkness. One sleep specialist says it this way, it's a subconscious state, and for the most part, sleepwalkers look awake. They have their eyes open, yet they have a glossy look to them. You and I might suffer from a spiritual sleepwalk. There's a pull within the human heart to move off the purity of the gospel of grace onto some other gospel. Our hearts, though redeemed, are not yet perfected. We've not yet reached heaven. So unchecked, even subconsciously, we might find ourselves in some strange place. Places off the gospel of grace. These places tend to be a little more natural. Easier to believe. Maybe more in tune with desires. Maybe more like a Pharisee. But this morning, as we open up our Bibles, I speak not to Pharisees, but to Christians. You are men and women who've repented of sin and believed upon Jesus Christ in large part. You've determined to come and follow Jesus. That means that you have a new identity and you are not a Pharisee. At the same time, as we hear a message directed toward Pharisees, you might feel some conviction, maybe a little rebuke from our Lord. This is not a bad thing. In fact, this is good for us. We need this. That is even a sign that the Word of God is doing a work in our hearts as the Spirit applies God's Word. This is healthy for us. So this morning, we're going to consider five different Gospels so that you and I can avoid the roaming away from the Gospel of grace. We pick up in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, and we begin in what I might call a mid-rebuke. Matthew chapter 23, those first 12 verses, Jesus preached. We learned last week how a faith can, can derail. Jesus is warning the crowds. And in no unclear terms, he schools the religious leaders of the time. He rebukes their hypocrisy and their deplorable leadership of God's people. And as we get into our text this morning, I want you to notice verse 14 for one moment. This verse, verse 14, is not in the earliest and best Bible manuscripts. That means this verse was inserted at a later time. Copyists make mistakes like this. 
from time to time over the centuries. In fact, this morning, if you have an ESV or an NIV Bible translation, this verse doesn't appear at all in your Bible. My version places the verse in brackets and makes a note about it. Now, this is not a cause for concern, but rather confidence. We have over 24,000 different Bible manuscripts that have been discovered. The runner-up is Homer's Iliad with 2,000 manuscripts. So we have an abundance over centuries of church history to compare and contrast Bible copies. Piecing them together reveals 14, verse 14, would have been an accidental addition at some point in time. And by the way, this type of analysis, these guys who are looking at these things, it should bring us some relief. Because something similar happens also at the end of Mark's gospel. There, signs which accompany believers include snake handling and drinking poison. You'd be happy to know you don't have to do that. But as we turn to our text this morning, I want to read the Lord's rebuke in its entirety. Beginning in verse 13, I think it's helpful to really capture the tone and the force of Jesus. Jesus speaks in chapter 23, verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sacrifices the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, a justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, But inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may be clean as well. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, 
you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. It's clear how Jesus felt about the hypocrisy and the waywardness of the Pharisees. And what I want to do this morning is is look at what he said to them and consider for ourselves how we too might walk off, wander away from a pure gospel of grace. One of the first ways this might happen and how it happened mainly for the Pharisees is through a gospel of works. It's our first point this morning. It's a gospel of works. And I'm putting verses 13 and 14 together. Again, we know who Jesus is speaking with. We've met the scribes and Pharisees before. The scribes were experts in the Old Testament law. They knew a great deal about it. They knew how to apply it. And the Pharisees were a religious group of the time, a leading leading group among the Jews. Well, Jesus calls them hypocrites. A hypocrite is a pretender. The Greek word came to be connected with stage plays. Someone who wore a mask, an actor. This meaning for the word hypocrite stretches along a broader spectrum, though. You and I are probably most familiar with someone who says one thing but does another. That's probably a common understanding of a hypocrite. In fact, back in verse 3, Jesus gives us that definition. They say things and do not do them. But a hypocrite could also involve something internal. For example, someone who is insincere in their motives. We'll see this later. We've read it in verses 27 and 28. There's an outward appearance that, deplay, that de, de, um, an outward appearance that betrays an inward reality. The Pharisees would say one thing, but mean something else inside. And by the way, this word hypocrite gets a lot of mileage out of Jesus in this passage. You may have heard it. He used it six times in this passage. In verse 16, he left it out and preferred the word blind guides as a substitute. He also labels the Pharisees as blind five times, meaning spiritually blind. And he supplements these words with other words such as fools, serpents, sons of hell, and brood of vipers. Again, let there be no doubt about how Jesus felt about derailed religion among the Jewish leaders. One might conclude that Jesus is being unloving. But defined biblically, this is an exceptional type of love. Because this is a love that confronts sin. This is a love that does not permit someone simply to wander off without warning, without rebuke, without calling them back. There's a type of love in the world today that stands in opposition to this love. We often see it as affirming. The right thing to do is simply to affirm that is loving. Jesus would have none of that, not when it comes to the state of someone's soul. So we're not surprised then that the orbit that exists between the world's view of love and Jesus' definition. 
It's yet another way that the the human heart can, can wander away from the purity of God's Word, just like religion in our text this morning. In these first few verses, Jesus rebukes them. They keep people from heaven. Jesus doesn't say how they did this, but the context gives us a clue. Look back at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. You see, they had some kind of a system. They would keep the Old Testament law, which is good, which was right, but they would keep additional traditions and then additional rules, and they would all be on the same par as God's Word. And eventually it all became really contorted. The traditions mixed in with the law, and the Pharisees themselves could not keep it. That was part of his rebuke. And here's the thing. The people looked to the scribes and Pharisees. They looked to them as examples. They looked to them as leaders. They were respectable people. They had knowledge. People trusted them. And the people saw the way they treated Jesus. Now, what kind of an impact would that have on them? What kind of a message does that send? And even if the people were moving in the direction of Jesus, and they were hearing his messages, and watching his miracles, and believing his teaching, the Pharisees would reach out and yank them by the tunic and pull them back to the system. This is a gospel of works they preach, and it stands in opposition to God's gospel of grace. The human heart easily sleepwalks into this one. It happens when we base our relationship with God on performance on keeping a set of works, on keeping a set of traditions. Did I do enough good? Did I avoid enough bad? What kind of day am I having? How do I feel? God's grace steps in, and it keeps no score. Our performance is not part of the relationship to God, the saving relationship to God. In other words, God's grace, the gospel, It's a never-ending supply that God gives the believer. You and I will have our bad days. We'll have our ups and downs. We'll even wrestle with an assurance of salvation based on our performance. But God's grace comes alongside and says, you were saved by grace through faith in Jesus. The human heart will want to trend toward works and try to move off of that grace, move away from that gospel, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for going there and for leading others to it. We, too, will need to avoid that temptation. Well, a second gospel happens in the next few verses, verses 16 through 22. I would call this the gospel of loopholes. The gospel of loopholes. Pharisees made the evasion of commands almost an art form. Now, verses 16 through 22 might read a little strange. So I want to give you a little historical background to understand these. In those verses, the Pharisees are swearing by different methods. You might have a neighbor who does this. That's not what Jesus is talking about. (laughs) Jesus is speaking about oaths, promise-keeping, that kind of swearing. 
The Pharisees kept the third commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. That's great. They refused to swear by the name of God. Instead, they devised an elaborate system for making oaths and keeping promises. Certain kinds of oaths they made then would be binding, and other ones less binding, more optional. This is like making promises with your fingers crossed behind your back. Take verse 16, for example. Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. Oh, well, he swore by the gold of the temple, he must be serious this time. Look now, verse 21, how does Jesus respond to all this? Whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. Jesus says, guys, God dwells in the temple. Essentially, you find yourself right back where you began, and this time you're swearing by God. In fact, in this passage, all of their oaths, whether it was an oath for the temple, gold, altar sacrifices, offerings, he says, every time you swear, you swear by God because they all point to him. Jesus is saying all of your oaths are equally sacred. They're all binding. In fact, Jesus taught him this before. Way back in Matthew 5, what did he say? Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. In other words, do what you say. Be faithful. Just follow through with your commitment. He's saying you don't need to cross your fingers. You don't need to swear on your mother's grave, which is weird. You don't need to cross your heart and hope to die. I don't know why these are weird sayings. But the Pharisees have created spiritual loopholes so they could get out of doing certain things and get around certain corners of the law. Let me just give you a modern-day example of this. The author of a journal article lives in a heavily populated Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. This is, in, um, this is in New York, in Queens, I believe. His neighbors know who he is, and they're not afraid to give him a call on the Sabbath to come and, give, to come and help out. He writes, quote, On one occasion, my neighbor asked me to come over to turn on her stove. This is an Orthodox Jewish woman. She had an automatic timer that usually turned it on, but that day it was broken and she needed to cook. She told me that she could use the stove and turn it off, but she was prohibited from turning it on. On another occasion, I was asked to come into the temple to turn on the air conditioner for the same reason. And on a number of occasions, I've been asked to push elevator buttons for Jews who wish to ride. These are all spiritual loopholes. Ways of trying to get around rules or or laws or traditions. And for the Pharisees, this was how they lived. It was their attempt to to get around God's laws and to do the kinds of things perhaps that they preferred to do over against those that they did not. One pastor writes it this way, they were using a microscope for details and a kaleidoscope for doctrines. But you and I can also succumb to this. We can find the gospel of loopholes to be attractive. If there's something prohibited that we want to do, if there's something commanded we don't want to do, 
Maybe we take a step and maybe we make an excuse or maybe we rationalize it away. And then we take a second step or a third and a fourth and a fifth and it gets easier as we go along. Before we know it, we're living by some other gospel entirely. But what else do we know deep down? We know we're not Pharisees. We know we have the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God is always the Word of God. And we know that we must take it at face value in that the truth of God's Word, it's equally binding no matter what it says. And again, the goal would be to obey, not, not to win God, but obey because we've received the grace of God. Well, that's the second gospel, the gospel of loopholes. The Pharisees also suffered from a gospel of rituals. In verses 23 and 24, this gospel of rituals, it's where procedures will trump people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You see, in their efforts to keep the law, they've neglected people. If there was a PGA Masters Championship for tithing, the Pharisees would have green jackets. These guys were awesome at tithing. They meticulously tithed all of their possessions. Jesus is listing off herbs, mint, dill, cumin. The word tithe means tenth. It's where we get the idea of 10%. Now, you and I do not tithe. We are not under the law. We give an offering, and the instructions for this are given to us in the New Testament. The tithe of the Old Testament is one part of what they were supposed to give. They're supposed to give the Lord's tithe, a festival tithe, a poor tithe, plus grace giving, free will offerings, and that would put the tithe over 20%. Again, the Pharisees are so good at tithing, so what's the problem? Well, they disregard people. Jesus calls their neglect the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Justice refers to to what is fair. Mercy is providing help to those in distress or those in need. And faithfulness, it refers to, to commitment. And Jesus essentially ranks some commandments here. Back in chapter 22, a Pharisee attested him on this. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What did he say? He said, love God. And here we see where he went further. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Essentially, the Pharisees failed to do the second, jeopardizing their ability to do the first. They majored on the minors. Jesus says to them, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, Have you ever eaten camel? Me neither. I hear it's awfully gamey. I think that's another polite way of saying gross. (laughs) But the Pharisees majored on the minors. Here they were taking off these, these big bites of things they shouldn't have been doing to begin with. And then they were forgetting about the small things, the things that that really the things that really mattered. I mean here the Pharisee would clip his herbs, he trot them over to the temple. And in so doing, he's stepping over the poor. He's ignoring the cries of the needy. 
See, in this gospel of rituals, it's a gospel they've created. They're neglecting things that are really important for the small, minute details that matter less so. And for you and I, the Christian life can be this way. We can get focused on, on rituals and keeping rules and traditions, and we can forget about people. I mean, it's entirely possible to come in here on a Sunday morning and to stand and, and to sing and to pray and to, to hear the Bible read. We could even give into the offering. But we could completely neglect to understand the need that is right down the row from us. Leon Morris observes here, Jesus does not find fault with the Pharisees for what they did, but for what they left undone. And this gospel of ritual, it's, it's a new way of living the Christian life. It's a stranger to the New Testament. But what it does is it makes religion about, about me and about God. It forgets about other people and those around me. As long as I'm checking the boxes, God is pleased. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is something that we've received by grace, and it's a grace we then, res- we then give to those needing it around us. It's a gospel of ritual. There's another gospel that the Pharisees have fallen into. It's a gospel of externals. In verses 25 through 28, there's a gospel of externals. And this is where religion becomes something about the outside and not the inside. More concerned with appearances than the heart. Jesus, the master illustrator, sums it up using dirty cups and rancid tombs. I'm placing these two woes together as well, verses 25 and 27. Both of these are concerned, again, with the inside and the outside and what is clean and unclean. And I believe Jesus here is driving home the same point. The Pharisees were very concerned about looking holy. In verse 25, for example, Jesus speaks about a cup that's been cleaned on the outside, but it's still dirty inside. Maybe you've drinking from a dirty cup before. Maybe the dishwasher didn't do its job. Maybe your spouse didn't. But our reaction, think about this, the reaction to the muck on the inside is much different than the outside. And that's the point Jesus makes. He says a clean cup is really important, but start with the inside. In verse 27, Jesus is teaching the same thing, but he's using now tombs. He's going to use tombs as an illustration. To touch a tomb made someone unclean. Numbers chapter 19, verse 11, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. Now, when Jesus taught, he is teaching during Passover week. And here, all these pilgrims are coming from all over Israel to come and worship in Jerusalem. Now, you do not want to be unclean for this festival. This is something not to be missed as a faithful Jewish man or woman. So it's really important that you don't, in this case, have any contact with dead bodies or with tombs. Anyone who's unclean could not participate. So how do you avoid touching a tomb by accident? You whitewash it. You make it stand out. I read somewhere that in this time when people died, they weren't placed together at, at a cemetery as we do today, but rather these corpses, these tombs could be buried here and there all over the place. 
I mean, you could bump into one of these if you're a pilgrim and really ruin your week. You couldn't go to Jerusalem, essentially. So these freshly whitewashed tombs, well, it would help to keep you clean, ceremonially pure. But the fact still remains that the contents, what's inside, nothing changed. Inside, Jesus says, they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Applied to the Pharisees, he says, inwardly, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is that inward hypocrisy we discussed at the outset. You see, God sees the division happening. Other people may not, but God does. And Jesus understands this. When I hear the word lawlessness, I tend to think about the Old West. You know, there's murder and drunkenness and, and immorality. Each man's morality is blowing around like a tumbleweed on the prairie. But Jesus says that it smolders in the hearts of the religious. Now, it's true that they didn't murder. They're not stumbling about as drunks. But Jesus also taught that the law goes beyond just the externals. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, and he gives them the full, the depth, or the breadth of that commandment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So Jesus says, outwardly, you may not have sinned visibly, but inwardly, the sin can happen. There's a hypocrisy there. There's a, a separation. There's a brokenness and not a wholeness, not an integrity. And Jesus calls us then to first clean the inside of the cup. And to borrow from the psalmist, he cries out, Create in me a, a clean heart, O God. You see, when, when the cleaning of our inside happens, the outside can follow. We become whole, and we become consistent, and we become genuine. Now, while the gospel of externals, it'll do so many good things. Outwardly, it might help many people, and we can even be a wonderful example to other people, but ultimately, God knows our hearts, and God desires our hearts. And when we begin with our hearts, then these things can follow. That brings us to the fifth gospel this gospel of the Pharisees, verses 29 through 36, I call it a gospel of neglect. The Pharisees will not see their sin. They almost refuse to see their sin. They cannot then see the beauty of Christ. In verse 30, Jesus quotes their boast. What do they say? If we'd been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Well, Jesus contests this. You see, they don't see their own hearts. They don't step back to see the big picture of what their religion has become. Five times, remember, in this passage, Jesus called them blind. And he's now going to prove their blindness to the kingdom plan of God. And he's going to do it using three different points in time. In verse 34, in the future... I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. You're going to kill them and crucify them. Their persecution of these men will not stop, even after Jesus raises from the dead and ascends to heaven. Jesus is going to point to their past. He's saying throughout the Old Testament, the Jews killed God's prophets. He says from the very first murder, the blood of righteous Abel, that's in the book of Genesis, 
To the last murder, the blood of Zechariah, that's in the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament. Jesus holds the Pharisees complicit from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament. They have shed righteous blood. And the final point in time he presents is the present. I'd say that they prove their guilt in their view of Jesus. As the words of this chapter are coming out of his mouth, it's these very men who are plotting to destroy him. You see, these Pharisees lived blind to their sin. They could not see their depravity, meaning they could not come to God with repentant hearts. What do they do instead? They create loopholes to get around it. They focus on externals. They deny their guilt. They live by a new and different gospel. Can you see the barrier that this is to God? He does not accept perfect people. Jesus doesn't redeem polished The Pharisees say, look, Lord, look what I've done for you. And God says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Contrite heart. These are the things that God does not despise. And you might come in here on a Sunday and think that a broken heart would push away people, and it might. It's not uncommon to come into a church and think that a smile is the price of admission. But I can assure you that God does not despise your brokenness. And if you're blessed, you're going to meet other people in this church who do not despise your brokenness. And they want to love you and help you. But we've got to be authentic with one another. And we've got to be real with God. If we can see our sin this morning, praise God. The Pharisees could not. They would not. And some will live an entire lifetime without ever seeing it. They will never confess it to God, meaning they'll never receive the grace of God. They're going to die in their sins unforgiven. In our account this morning, Jesus has been furious. But the heart of our Lord is also tender. In facing the unrepentant, he is bold. But in facing the repentant, he's quite gentle. Though he's rebuked these men, listen to this, he also invites them. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus offers a gospel of grace. And you need to know this morning that Jesus is not rubbing his hands together, watching the clock of your life tick down. Jesus is not excited to, to judge you and pass condemnation upon you. Jesus says, we're already judged. In John chapter 3, verse 18, whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. None of us are born neutral. None of us come into this world as children of God. We are born sinners and condemned for that sin. But Jesus invites you, and he cares for you. He he cares for you as a hen gathers her chicks, he says. And this Jesus wants to protect you. 
and he wants to grant you peace, and he wants to give you joy, and he wants your life to be fulfilled. He wants to provide for you and love you and forgive you. And if you come this morning and you confess your sin to him, if you come believing that he is God, you will be forgiven. And if you refuse, you will stand alongside the Pharisees or whatever gospel you might believe. You might point to your works and say, I I, I did a number of things for you, God. You might point to your life and say, I lived a good life. I tried my best. I, I, I dressed up my life. But that does not have to be, not through faith in Jesus Christ. That means for the rest of us this morning, remember, you are not a Pharisee. This morning's message may have shaken us out of that spiritual sleepwalk. The Holy Spirit may have come alongside you and grabbed your arm and told you to wake up. And this is good because Jesus is ready to give you grace as well to forgive you and to restore you, to gather you as a hen does her chicks, if in any way you've fallen into one of these different gospels. You see, there's many ways that we can walk off into one of them, many ways that we can be like the Pharisees. But this morning, believer, you and I, according to the grace of God, we are anti-Pharisee. We stand by grace and not by works. That empowers obedience so that we can avoid the loopholes and not need to care about them. These rituals, the externals, they're fine, but they follow a heart filled with the grace of God. And you and I can look at our sin because it does not define us. Christ has forgiven it. I would even say it'd be hypocrisy for a Christian to act like a Pharisee. So let us awaken our hearts to the drift and live by the grace that prevents it. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are a God of unbounding grace. And I pray for any way that we struggle to understand that grace for ourselves, for any way we might have moved off of that grace onto some other belief. Oh, Father, I pray you'd forgive us, that you would grant us eyes to see the beauty of pure grace. We pray today for those among us, for our friends, family, for neighbors who do not yet know the grace of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open up their hearts to believe that they could receive your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.